Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Horwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're returning to The Shadow of Rinsmouth once more for part four. But before we get into all that fishy stuff, what is going on? Well, I hear Paul's not dealing with fish, but lots of dragons down south in December time. So coming close just after the date of this episode being released. Yep, December the 2nd, 2023. I'll be in London for Dragon Meat. I'm not sure what's going on there at the minute, whether, you know, what we're going to be doing there, but uh, we'll be there. I'll be there with Chaosium. Our stand this time is going to be upstairs rather than downstairs because there's like two levels. So we're going to be upstairs. So look for us there. And speaking of conventions, Matt and I are going to be at the Illusion Horror Con that weekend as well. This is an online convention for primarily cult, but also other RPGs, which takes place on Discord. And I'll put a link in the show notes. And Matt and I are going to be doing panels on that. Panels and probably a combination of almost certainly running games as well. Both of us are going to be on a panel on the third, which is all about exploring the different subgenres of horror RPGs, gothic horror, survival horror, cosmic horror, and more, which, I mean, we, we may have some experience for talking about such things on the, uh, the podcast. Just a few, yeah. Maybe survival horror, maybe not, but the others, definitely. We did an episode on survival horror, Matt. I have, I have slept since then. Not much, but I have slept since then. <laughs> And I'll also be on another two on the Saturday. I'll be talking about designing compelling villains and monsters for horror RPGs. And on Sunday, I'll be on one about horror podcasting. So, yeah, see whether I've got anything to say about that. I hear that Paul's lost a whole load of sanity that you've been uh, prompted to do some, uh, what, what do they call it, involuntary or insane action that the GM has taken over your character sheet. Well, it's not, it's not involuntary, it's voluntary. <laughs> I haven't been forced to do this. That makes it even more insane. Right, okay. Fair enough, Matt. So I'd like to tell people that I signed up for a challenge this month. And, and you know, we're, we're most of the, well, over halfway through the month now of November 2023, this is, just in case you're listening in the future. And I've signed up to do a challenge in aid of Cancer Research Charity. And the challenge is to do 100 press-ups every day. <laughs> now, I can't do 100 all in one go. I'm not like Superman. <laughs> but I can do them sort of in, in sets, sort of spread out a bit. And I've been keeping that up every day. Actually, no, I tell a lie. I missed one day because I was at Grogmeat. But then for the following days, I did an extra 20 each day to keep up my average. So as far as I'm concerned, I've done 100 a day. Now, if you'd like to sponsor me for this very worthwhile charity, then there'll be a link in the show notes. You can go and find those at blasphemoustomes.com. Thank you. For every pound donated, you get a point of sanity back. <laughs> and if you are one of our backers on Patreon, we would like it very much if you checked your address, because there may be stuff coming to you soon, and we'd like it to go to the right place. Our bikey delivery service needs to have accurate information as to where to fly to. So if you're backing us before the end of November at the $3 level, $3 or above, we will send you a wonderful Christmas card this year, designed by Nefili Mandalaris. And if you are backing us at the $5 level or above, we will also send you a Blasphemous Tome. Blasphemous Tome, issue 11. It's coming! It is coming. <laughs> Featuring a uh, scenario, Black Shade, by our very own Scott Dawood. Yeah, Black Shade is a weird, I guess, sort of pulpy, though it's not Pulp Cthulhu, scenario set in 1890s Yorkshire with, yeah, some weird science experiments. Gaslight Yorkshire. <laughs> Except it's not gaslight, it's, it's electric light. That's the whole point of it. Well, yeah, but the period we refer to as gaslight. Uh, but I'm trying to subvert that, Paul. Hmm. 
Electric gaslight. Yeah, exactly. It's like the horseless carriage. Just the idea of pulp Yorkshire, I think, is definitely a sound hit. <laughs> oh, that's just an undercooked Yorkshire pudding, isn't it? <laughs> we'll get hate mail <laughs> on the back of a whippet, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Tucked inside a flat cap. And now on to our main topic, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, Part 4. Still reeling from Zadok Allen's revelations, but thankfully my voice is not uh, reeling in the same way. Robert Olmsted prepares to leave Innsmouth. That should work out pretty nice for him. It's going to be a really short end to a story. It's a nice sightseeing tour and we're all done. We start off Chapter 4 now. And Robert Olmsted has been left, as we've just suggested, in an indescribable mood by Zadok Allen's strange potted history of Innsmouth. He decides that he'll sift through the details in his mind later, as he has a bus to catch. With 45 minutes until departure time, Olmsted sets off to the Gilman house, via a different route than he took on the way there, just so he can see some of the town, to retrieve his valise. Yeah, I'm sure there's a bit here where he says he's taken a different route just to take in some more of the architecture. Yes. Um, which is like, you've already looked around a bunch of architecture. Now you've got a short amount of time to get there for when the bus is leaving. But no, I need to go and look at more architecture. Though the golden light of late afternoon gives the ancient roofs and decrepit chimneys an air of mystic loveliness and peace, Olmsted cannot help glancing over his shoulder now and then. Even so, he spends some time taking in the architectural details. Lovecraft is very much writing him about himself oh, here. He's, God, uh, yeah. he's very much the protagonist. And, and we see that in a lot of his letters where he journeys the US pretty widely and is always discussing the architecture amongst many other things. And living on crackers. Well, we'll come to that later, yeah. People are already waiting for the bus when Olmsted arrives and he feels as if many bulging, watery, unblinking eyes are looking at him oddly. I'd like to know what all those bulging, watery, unwinking eyes would look like if they're looking at him normally, but there we go. <laughs> when the bus turns up, Olmsted sees the same men disembarking and has a done so in Newburyport that morning. They just go round and round on the bus like a merry-go-round. Well, I think they commute. That's the point. They, yeah, they're coming uh, home, right? Yeah, they, they go off to Newburyport to work and then come back. But you say he sees the same men disembarking. Yeah, they're getting off here. But they'd also got off that morning. Yeah, that's how commuting works. They got off at Newburyport. They, he'd seen them getting off in Newburyport. Oh, in Newburyport, right. I, no, I, I read yeah. it as the fact it was the same people turning up that had turned up in the morning as well. Oh, I see. That would be additionally weird. But uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. You've just spelled a piece of the weirdness for me, damn it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's like the director's cut. Travelling fish salesmen, they go door to door selling halibut. Halibut are big, though. You wouldn't carry those on the bus. Cut it up into chunks. You saw a halibut head. Well, you do. That is, that is what, what, what one does with a halibut. When Olmsted boards the bus, however, he learns to his dismay that there is a problem with the engine. There is no chance that it will be repaired in time to leave that night. With no other transportation options available, Joe Sargent tells Olmsted that he will have to stay overnight in Innsmouth. And there is a reference in the Klinger annotated Lovecraft to Lovecraft's original notes for The Shadow of Rinsmith, where he does state outright that this is a ruse, there's no mm. mechanical problem with the bus, which I think we can infer from this, but Lovecraft yeah. makes it explicit in his notes that yeah, this is a way to keep Olmsted in Innsmouth so that he can be dealt with. Otherwise, you just say he just like missed the bus, but uh, very deliberate. Hmm. Yeah, this is more sinister. Dreading the fall of night in this decaying and half unlighted town, Olmsted goes into the Gilman house and speaks to the sullen, queer looking night clerk who offers him a room for a dollar. The clerk takes Olmsted's valise and leads him up three creaking flights of stairs past dusty corridors, which seem wholly devoid of life. I found myself paying a lot more attention to the descriptions of the Gilman House this time because it's a location I found myself 
using a few times in games recently. And I hadn't read the story for some years, and so the details were vague in my mind. Hmm. And I think if you're planning on setting stuff in Innsmouth, so, you know, um, this is blindingly obvious, but it is worth going back and reading the details in this story, because certainly if your memory is anywhere near as scattered as mine, you have probably misremembered stuff and reinvented stuff out of whole cloth, which, you know, I mean, it's fine to do in a game, but there's there's all sorts of cool stuff in the, the story that you've probably forgotten. The room proves dismal with bare, cheap furnishings. It overlooks a dingy courtyard and is otherwise hemmed in by low, deserted brick blocks. It commands a view of decrepit, westward-stretching roofs, with a marshy countryside beyond. It sounds like plenty of hotels I've stayed in up north. Don't see what anything sinister is about this at all. As it's still light outside, Olmsted heads out to get something to eat. The grocery store is closed at this point, so he visits a restaurant where the staff very much have the Innsmouth look. He is, however, relieved to find that they served tinned soup, and he has a bowl of vegetable soup accompanied by crackers, which seems very, very on-brand for Lovecraft. Yeah, and he's relieved that it comes out of a tin, isn't he? It's not just that it's tinned soup. He's relieved that it's been manufactured elsewhere and bought in. It's not something the uh, potentially fish people have made. Untouched by inhuman hand. And it worked out so well for the Franklin expedition, didn't it? Hmm. Heading back to the hotel, Olmsted gets a newspaper and a fly-specked magazine from the clerk and goes up to his room to read. Hoping to put Alan's tale out of his mind, instead he finds himself dwelling on the story the Newburyport ticket agent relayed about the strange voices the factory inspector had heard in the hotel. Yeah, I don't think I'd be able to read either. It's uh, <laughs> it's just, just too many things going around in your head. You've heard Zadok Allen telling you all about the horrors of Innsmouth and the history of it and the people there. And also, yeah, in the earlier episode, we talked about this ticket agent and all the the tales that he relayed, you know. So we've heard a lot about this this uh, Gilman house. And it doesn't sound good. Definitely not a five star trip advisor review. Or should that be relayed? Hmm. Very good. Brumch. The mustiness of the room makes it hard for Olmsted to keep his thoughts wholesome, making him focus on death and decay. He is also troubled by the missing bolt on his room door, but manages to remove the bolt from his clothes press to replace it. As a uh, good example of a uh, combined spot-hidden uh, mechanical repair coming into effect here. Yeah, totally. Lovecraft makes a point of mentioning that Olmsted is walking around with a pocket screwdriver, which obviously saves the day in this case. Your investigator should obviously never leave home without one. Lying on the bed fully clothed, Olmsted reads, waiting in vain for drowsiness to take him. He hears what he takes to be the creak of furtive footsteps all around, but no voices, and wonders if it is safe to sleep. It's not, Robert, it's not. The question is answered when Olmsted hears someone trying to unlock his room door. Foiled by the bolt, this would-be intruder moves quietly to the next bedroom and then tries to get into Olmsted's room via the connecting door. Happily, Olmsted thought to bolt this, and the prowler creeps off again. So we got this layout of the bedrooms on this floor of the Gilman house, where each one has connecting doors on either side. I don't stay in that many hotels these days. It's certainly a feature I associate with with older hotels, and I remember a lot of the hotels I went to when I was young having them. But I, I don't know if connecting doors like that are quite as ubiquitous as they, they once were. They still are. I can attest to this. I went to Salt Lake City in July and had stayed in a hmm. hotel there, and sure enough, it had a connecting door into the next room. And Boy, did I make sure that hmm. thing was bolted in case a deep one came through. <laughs> <laughs> Were there connecting doors on either side, though, or was it just the one? Just the one side. You got the door that got into the, the room, the 
then it forms like the bathroom on the left hand side and it was almost mm. opposite the bathroom door so it was on the on the long side of the room right before you got to the beds on the on the far left because if I think about it, when I've encountered connecting rooms before, it tends to be two rooms that are connected. So it's like they come as a pair and there's one connecting door between them. But I'm not sure I've ever encountered a hotel or a boarding house or something like this where there is just a whole row of them all the way down the floor. Yeah, that, that's the point. Yeah, I've never had them on both sides. But yeah, in, the, in a hotel where you've got the two doors to go into the rooms that are pretty much side by side, that would be indicative of those are a pair. Mm. Realising he has subconsciously been preparing a plan for escape, Olmsted starts gathering a few belongings. As he tries turning on the light, he discovers the power has been cut, suggesting that some coordinated action against him. As I stood pondering, with my hand on the now useless switch, I heard a muffled creaking on the floor below, and thought I could barely distinguish voices in conversation. A moment later, I felt less sure that the deeper sounds were voices, since the apparent hoarse barkings and loose-syllabled croakings bore little resemblance to recognised human speech. Then I thought with renewed force of what the factory inspector had heard in the night in this mouldering and pestilential building. I like that word, pestilential. That's, that's a good adjective mm. there. Working quickly by flashlight, Olmsted realises there is no fire escape, only a three-storey drop to the cobbled courtyard. He works out that his only chance is to move to a room a few doors down where he can jump to the roof of a neighbouring building. This sounds like fun. <laughs> I really had trouble getting my head around this layout that we'll see referred to over and over again here, where the roofs were in relation to the Gilman house and how he was leaping across. Again, this may be just down to my inability to picture stuff, but... I was thinking about how I'd present this in the game with with the escape routes and so on. And, yeah, I, I just couldn't make the pieces click. No, I'm not quite sure about it either. I guess there is... Is he talking about... We can't be talking about a, a house on the opposite side of the street because that would be too far away. So maybe he's like on a... I'm guessing he's not leaping across the street. He's leaping to a neighbouring building, like mm. the, the next one, like the neighbouring building. A little alleyway or something, yeah. It's just a narrow gap between the two buildings, but the roofs aren't, you know, it's not a consistent roof along the, the length of the, the hotel wall. It's kind of, yeah, I, I have picked trouble sort of imagining quite what that means as well. But I mean, it's, it's you know, I guess it's, uh, yeah, it's credible, but... Mm. Yeah, Getting to this room will be tricky. Olmsted cannot risk the corridor and he realises he will have to break down the connecting doors. This will make a lot of noise, so he must act quickly. Even so, he calculates his odds to be slender. Never tell me the odds. <laughs> Consulting the map drawn by the grocery clerk, which he does throughout this story, this seems to be the most mm. valuable thing that he's picked up in Innsmouth. Olmsted plots out the quickest route out of town. He decides to take a northbound path through the rooms, which he hopes will take him across to some rooftops where he can quickly clamber down to the ground level. As I thought of these things, I looked out over the squalid sea of decaying roofs below me, now brightened by the beams of a moon not much past full. On the right, the black gash of a river gorge clove the panorama, abandoned factories and railway station clinging barnacle-like to its sides. Beyond it, the rusted railway of the Rowley Road led off through a flat, marshy terrain dotted with islets of higher and drier scrub-grown land. On the left, the creek-threaded countryside was nearer, the narrow road to Ipswich gleaming white in the moonlight. I could not see from my side of the hotel the southward route towards Arkham, which I had determined to take. As Olmsted prepares to go, he hears the floorboards creak outside his room and sees a moving light through the gap under the door. There are muffled voices, followed by knocking. 
and suddenly he realises it's just room service after all. <laughs> As this knocking grows louder, Ormstead tries bashing through the connecting door. It holds at first as he fails his strength roll, but he decides to push the roll. Eventually it opens with a crash and the sounds outside grow more violent. Olmsted frantically bolts the front door to the next room as someone tries to unlock it. He despairs as he hears someone else unlocking the next room in line as well. And this is a rare uh, sort of action sequence here for Lovecraft. We don't usually get this sort of thing, but uh, this is pretty cool. Regardless, with a dazed automatism which persists despite hopelessness, he tries the next connecting door and finds it ajar. He rushes through and pushes against the main door of the room, which is already opening, catching the intruder by surprise. Olmsted swiftly bolts this door too. Hearing someone unlocking the following room to the north, Olmsted pushes a bureau in front of the connecting door and a bed frame in front of the other one. He hopes these will hold as he makes his escape through the window. The sense of horror is compounding because not one of the pursuers, despite hideous pantings, grunting and subdued barkings, utters an unmuffled or intelligible vocal sound. Yeah, again, that's quite creepy. Hearing the voices massing at the connecting door he had just entered through, Olmsted prepares to jump across to the neighbouring roof. This will be hazardous because the roof is steep, and he's not sure that he's going to be able to land on it safely. As the besiegers start to smash through the connecting door, Olmsted seizes upon a new plan. He pulls down the curtains and fashions an improvised rope ladder, clambering down to the neighbouring roof instead of leaping. Ah, so okay, so this roof is adjoining his building then, because he's clambering vertically down so he's not leaping across a gap he's just jumping downward onto the other roof so it's maybe it's a bit precarious but yeah it's kind of easier to lower yourself down you know you're not going to have the, the impact ah yeah yeah that could be it but i was playing through this as a scene from a game in my head and I was thinking, you've got Olmsted there in the bedroom getting ready to leap out the window mm. and the player's looking at his character sheet thinking I've got base and jump, 20% shit. And yeah, desperately going through a sheet and says, uh, oh, um, can I pull down these curtains and make an, an improvised rope ladder instead? And the keeper's sitting there thinking, okay, well, I guess, I, I don't know, maybe a, a combined strength mechanical repair role, but it's going to be really difficult because, I mean, you've got to get that down. And, I mean, you, you, you're probably going to have to tie the curtains together, lash them a bit into a rope ladder. And, you, you, I mean, how are you going to secure it anyway to clamber down safely? And the player just says, I'll roll to zero one. Oh, okay, fuck it. Yeah, all right, you get out the window. Mm. Damn those polyhedral gods. Looking around, he sees no pursuers at the window, but spies lights ominously blazing in the order of Dagon Hall. He identifies a nearby skylight as his best way down, but there are no steps. Olmsted instead opts to drop through the skylight and hope for the best. Give me that luck roll. Yeah, so now he's dropping distances into darkness. So, uh, yeah. yeah, this is pretty risky stuff. Yeah, into this empty space while this deserted building that's filled with bits of broken crates and debris and so on. Mm. So yeah, you can see how that could go horribly wrong, but it doesn't. Running through the ghoulish looking building, Olmsted finds a back door leading to grass-grown cobblestones of a dark courtyard. Navigating by flashlight, he thinks he hears confused sounds coming from the Gilman house. When a dead end forces him to double back, Olmsted has to stop short. For out of an opened door in the Gilman house, a large crowd of doubtful shapes was pouring, lanterns bobbing in the darkness, and horrible croaking voices exchanging low cries in what was certainly not English. The figures moved uncertainly, and I realised to my relief that they did not know where I had gone. But for all that, they sent a shiver of horror through my frame. Their features were indistinguishable, but their crouching, shambling gait was abominably repellent. And, worst of all, I perceived that one figure 
was strangely robed and unmistakably surmounted by a tall tiara of a design altogether too familiar. I like the detail there that these cries of the voices are communicating in something that is certainly not English. Mm. That implies that the Deep Ones had their own language and that they're communicating in this rather than in the English that they they seem to speak, at least to outsiders in Innsmouth. Mm. Desperately moving from empty building to empty building, Olmsted is dogged by the sound of hoarse voices, of footsteps, and of a curious kind of pattering which does not quite sound like footsteps. Well, like flipper steps. He continues along the outside of the houses, thankful for the lack of street lighting. When he reaches open ground, hit by moonlight, Olmsted shambles across it, trying to imitate the gate of the Innsmouth residence. He should have been going, Immortep, as he's going across there to really blend Because <laughs> we know that works in all films. It's very Shaun of the Dead, I thought, this bit. It is, isn't it? But yeah. if this were a game, what, as a keeper, would you be asking for as a role here from the player for their character to get away with this shambling gate? I'd say give me a combined, just to be really awkward, give me a combined stealth, acting, and persuade role. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was trying to work out whether it came under acting, disguise, whether it might just be some form of dex role. But yeah, yeah, whatever it is, I mean, I'm sure you could just pull something out of your ass during the game. I rolled a one. (laughs) (sighs) Glancing about me, I involuntarily let my pace slacken for a second to take in the sight of the sea, gorgeous in the burning moonlight at the street's end. Far out beyond the breakwater was the dim, dark line of Devil Reef, and as I glimpsed it, I could not help thinking of all the hideous legends I had heard in the last 34 hours. Legends which portrayed this ragged rock as a veritable gateway to realms of unfathomed horror and inconceivable abnormality. Now, I don't think Lovecraft uses the word gorgeous very often. Mm. He turns to look at the sea and, and sees that it's a gorgeous sight, which is, you know, obviously without sort of uh, saying too much about what comes on in, in later in the story, it's, it's notable, but I think it is uh, an unusual turn of phrase for Lovecraft. But we see stuff like this all the way through this story where there is this some conflict between Olmsted's view of Innsmouth as decaying and horrible and filled with pestilence and unpleasantness. And then these moments of beauty where he sees it bathed in golden sunlight or in moonlight and sees the spires and looks out to see, I mean, particularly the sea, yes, that holds an appeal for him. But it's not just that, it's the, the, the whole town. There's very much this conflict between the beauty he sees in it and the architectural details and its place and nature and the sheer unnaturalness of it. In a a game, it would be very easy, I think, just to get carried away with describing the horror and unpleasantness and the terrible smells and the muck and decay. But somehow introducing those moments of beauty, I don't know, makes it worse. And speaking of brief moments of beauty, let's have a short commercial break. Did you know there are show notes for every episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias? You can find them at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find links to our blog, merchandise and Patreon. Miss Halloween. The looters are facing their fears. Now I have that fear. Now Dude, I'm, like I, I'm realizing I'm yeah. scared of everything. You just unlocked my new fear. I live in a constant state of anxieties. With Deanna Nuval. Mmm, spiders. Melinda Macklem. I feel like I say I'm fine with heights until I actually am up high. And special guests, Tina Wonglu. Wait, I'm scared of a head-on collision. And Madeline Hours. Episiotomies, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but these final girls are dead set on getting out alive. 
Never separate from the group. Don't go upstairs. No camping. Don't be a person of color. And I'm just kidding. I can't avoid that. Join us on October 24th and the 31st for the final Final Girls, a horrifying two-part special with Game Master Andrew Gauntlet. Uh, boo. Lock your doors, check your back seats, and tune in to the Looters Feed wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's rejoin Robert Olmsted as he tries to get the hell out of Innsmouth. Then, to Olmsted's dismay, he sees flashes of light from out on the reef, followed by answering flashes from the lofty cupola of the Gilman house. He picks up his shambling pace, still glancing towards the sea. The fires are lit! Innsmouth is calling! (laughs) (laughs) It was then that the most horrible impression of all was borne in upon me, the impression which destroyed my last vestige of self-control and sent me running frantically southward past the yawning black doorways and fishily staring windows of that deserted nightmare street. For, at a closer glance, I saw that the moonlit waters between the reef and the shore were far from empty. They were alive, with a teeming horde of shapes swimming inward toward the town. And even at my vast distance, and in my single moment of perception, I could tell that the bobbing heads and flailing arms were alien and aberrant, in a way scarcely to be expressed or consciously formulated. Panicked, Armstead starts running. He hears something like the hue and cry of organised pursuit, discovering that the road he planned to take out of town is now blocked off. He shelters in a dark doorway and considers his options. From the sounds made by the search party, they are not pursuing Armstead directly. Instead, they appear to be cutting off every way out of town. Brain reeling, he wonders if he will have to escape across the marshland. Then... Olmsted remembers that there is an abandoned railway line heading towards Rowley that he had seen from his hotel window. Maybe the townsfolk had overlooked that possible escape route. And I think this aspect of the pursuit is kind of cool in that it's not just that there's a mob chasing Olmsted, but there are large numbers of townsfolk and, well, maybe other things that are just spreading out and these these search parties mm. wandering around and he's having to duck and hide. So it, it doesn't feel so much like a chase as this ongoing game of hideous hide-and-seek. Yeah, yeah. Using his flashlight to consult the map again that the grocery clerk gave him, Olmsted plots his route to the railway station and then heads off. Passing by occupied buildings and avoiding open spaces, he once again spots his pursuers and sees that they now have a car. And again, that's not something you necessarily think of when you're being pursued by monsters. Yeah, I'm being pursued by packs of monsters. Oh, and they have a car now. Yeah, he makes reference to that earlier in the story, doesn't he? That what well, animals, yeah. they shun the deep ones and, and the town of Innsmouth. There's no cats and dogs for a start, but I'm guessing up until a couple of decades ago, it was all horses, but now they've got cars mm-hmm. and the you know, automobiles. So that's great for Innsmouth because they can use those. Who says that cultists don't move with the times? Exactly. Two of the figures I glimpsed were in voluminous robes and one wore a peaked diadem which glistened whitely in the moonlight. The gait of this figure was so odd that it sent a chill through me, for it seemed to me the creature was almost hopping. Hopping. Yes. Almost. Ribbit. Yeah. Continuing on his journey, Olmsted looks out to sea, half expecting to see a ship there. Instead... He spies a rowboat pulling in towards the abandoned wharfs, laden with some bulky, tarpaulin-laden object. The boat is accompanied by several swimmers. Did I miss something when going through this story? Is Teverick explained what that thing under the tarpaulin is? I was trying to remember as I was going through it later whether that's ever referred back to, because it's, it's such an intriguing detail. And I was trying to work out what the hell it meant. 
I can't remember it coming up later, but I assumed it was a Shoggoth and that he wasn't actually seeing a tarpaulin at all. It was just the surface of the thing. Oh, that's an idea, yeah. Yeah, but Zadok Allen was also implying that the Shoggoth might already be in Innsmouth up in those houses in the north because he was talking about the things that they brought up from the sea being there. But yeah, no, no, I think that possibly works. Maybe it's their trained attack Shoggoth. There's a few bits in this story, and we're coming up towards one in a little while, where it hints that it might be a Shoggoth we're seeing, but we never really... Mm. Lovecraft, in his writing, doesn't really make it very clear whether it is supposed to be one or not. It's it's really, I think, not until you've familiarised yourself with the story that that hint becomes evident. And even then, it's it's fairly ambiguous. Mm. Yeah, which is fine. It doesn't really back it up very much to imply that it is definitely a Shoggoth. But I like Matt's idea that that might not be tarpaulin. Yeah, yeah, I think that's cool. Before he gets much further, Olmsted spots another band of pursuers. As they reached the broadly open space where I had had my first disquieting glimpse of the moonlit water, I could see them plainly only a block away and was horrified by the bestial abnormality of their faces and the dog-like subhumanness of their crouching gait. One man moved in a positively simian way, with long arms frequently touching the ground, while another figure, robed and tiarid, seemed to progress in an almost hopping fashion. They almost hop around here. They never fully full-blown go frog-like hop there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but it's also the simian arms these long arms mm. that almost drag along the ground that's a detail i don't often think to put in when i'm describing deep ones and hybrids but yeah it's it's a nice one yeah, it seems an odd feature for them mm. some of these figures look in olmstead's direction and he continues to shamble not knowing if they have seen him or not Either way, they carry on croaking and jabbering in some hateful guttural patois he cannot identify. After a near miss with a drunk reeling past, Olmsted gets close enough to the waterfalls for them to muffle his footsteps. Finding the great brick warehouse walls surrounding him somehow more terrifying than the fronts of private houses, Olmsted hurries on. Finally, he catches sight of the station and makes for the tracks. The rails were rusty, but mainly intact, and not more than half the ties had rotted away. Walking or running on such a surface was very difficult, but I did my best, and on the whole made very fair time. For some distance the line kept on along the gorge's brink, but at length I reached the long covered bridge, where it crossed the chasm at a dizzy height. The condition of this bridge would determine my next step. If humanly possible, I would use it. If not, I would have to risk more street wandering and take the nearest intact highway bridge. Entering the vast, barn-like length of the bridge, Olmsted's flashlight reveals that the ties are intact. He continues on, bats flapping around him, and has to leap over a gap in the tracks. Finally, however, he emerges from the macabre tunnel into a more rural region of town. Yeah, I like this old um, closed-in bridge. We don't Mm. really see those in the UK very much. They seem to be a feature of some American railways. Covered bridges in general, are they largely a New England thing or at least a a northeast thing? I think so, but I'm not sure about that. Like you say, Paul, this is such a great location. I think if I were using this in the game, if I had a scene like this in the game, I wouldn't be able to resist putting something more than just bats flapping around in there. It just feels like it's got such potential, particularly with it being partially collapsed and having to leap across. If it were a game for you to do something to really escalate the tension and danger at this stage. Yeah, I think that leaping across in darkness... Hmm. as he does in, in that tunnel, is, is pretty scary. Passing through weeds and briars that rip his clothes, Olmsted finds himself entering marshland. He is uncomfortably aware that while the undergrowth provides some cover, his path is visible from the Rowley Road. Looking back, Olmsted sees the ancient spires and roofs 
of decaying Innsmouth, gleaming lovely and ethereal in the magic yellow moonlight. He thinks of how they must have looked in the old days before the shadow fell. Then he sees something far less tranquil. And again, you've got that little moment of beauty there. And Mm. it's also... (laughs) I guess very in keeping with what we've seen of Olmsted as a Lovecraft stand-in, that he is, even at this moment, thinking, oh, architecture. Mm. <laughs> and I like his use of the phrase, before the shadow fell, you know, given this story is called The Shadow of Rinsmouth. Yes. What I saw, or fancied I saw, was a disturbing suggestion of undulant motion far to the south, a suggestion which made me conclude that a very large horde must be pouring out of the city along the level Ipswich Road. The distance was great, and I could distinguish nothing in detail, but I did not at all like the look of that moving column. It undulated too much, and glistened too brightly in the rays of the now westering moon. There was the suggestion of sound, too, though the wind was blowing the other way. A suggestion of bestial scraping and bellowing even worse than the muttering of the parties I had lately overheard. So going back to the ideas of of, uh, Shoggoth, I mean, we've got this massive Mm. undulating column that that makes weird noises. Mm -hmm. I mean, the column made me think of a procession of deep ones and the undulating being them hopping. But yeah, I, I like that idea as well that yeah yeah that it could be something um far more gelatinous yeah i mean it could be either way yeah i I just don't really get why i guess the glistening because they're they're deep ones and they're like frogs and toads that you know they got that sort of glistening skin i suppose Mm. but yeah it's not entirely clear what we're seeing here but it is at a distance and it's only just clicked what this reminds me of this whole setup with him fleeing and looking back and seeing this miscellany of malformed things swarming after him, it really makes me think of Tam O'Shanter, the Robert Burns poem, where you had this procession of fairies chasing Tam O'Shanter, these weird goblins and and uh, creatures that form this sort of hideous procession. And yeah, it really feels an awful lot like Tam O'Shanter. Mm. I wonder whether that was a conscious influence. I was actually more taken with Miss that it would be a reference after Lovecraft, so, but it's the same description brought this image to mind. I was more thinking of Quatermass in the Pit, where you have the race memory that's dragged out of Rooney's mind, where it shows the hordes of the Martians leaping in this, there's this undulating sea of heads bobbing up and down as they march across the screen. That, that was what it made me think of. Well, again, I mean, Neil might have been influenced by either this or Tam O'Shanter or both, but, mm. but I guess it's, it's not a, an image that you couldn't come up with on your own as well. Olmsted finds himself thinking of those very extreme Innsmouth types said to be hidden in crumbling, centuried warrens near the waterfront, and of those nameless swimmers he'd seen. The sheer number of pursuers seemed strangely large for a town as depopulated as Innsmouth. That's a lovely detail, isn't it, that he's wandered through this ghost town almost, and suddenly there are hundreds, maybe thousands of pursuers out there. Where do they all come from? They woke up. (laughs) Oh, and also came from the sea. Whence could come the dense personnel of such a column as I now beheld? Did those ancient, unplumbed warrens teem with a twisted, uncatalogued and unsuspected life? Or had some unseen ship indeed landed a legion of unknown outsiders on that hellish reef? With everything that he's heard from Zadok Allen and pieced together and so on, I don't know, it seems almost naive at this stage that he's still thinking, well, maybe they came from a ship. I guess denial is a powerful thing. Struggling through the brush, Olmsted smells a strong fishy odour as the wind changes. The wind also carries another sound too, a kind of 
wholesale colossal flopping or pattering which somehow calls up images of the most detestable sort. As the stench and sound grow stronger, Olmsted takes shelter. He's coming to a point where the road and the railway track cross, but he hopes that the undergrowth will shelter him from view. What he fears is not so much being seen as what he may see himself, perhaps the worst of all Innsmouth types, something one would not care to remember. I really like that bit. It took me right back to that feeling of being a young child and being afraid of the dark and having nightmares in which there were things that I just did not want to see. I remember having this incredibly vivid dream when I was probably about nine or ten or something, where there was just a dark window in the wall, and I knew that there was something, I think I think I had it in my head it was a ghost, but there was something horrible on the other side, and I just knew that if I saw whatever was on the other side of the window, it would be the worst thing in the world, and that I would never get over it, and the, the terror of the dream was just about not wanting to see what was out there in the dark, and this little description here tapped right into that. Hearing a bestial babble of croaking, baying, and barking, without the least suggestion of human speech, Olmsted wonders if his pursuers have dogs after all, or if this is their own voices. That flopping or pattering was monstrous. I could not look upon the degenerate creatures responsible for it. I would keep my eyes shut till the sounds receded toward the west. The horde was very close now the air foul with their hoarse snarlings, and the ground almost shaking with their alien-rhythmed footfalls. My breath ceased to come, and I put every ounce of willpower into the task of holding my eyelids down. Olmsted tells us that he is not willing to say whether what followed was a hideous actuality or only a nightmare hallucination. The later action taken by the government would seem to confirm it as monstrous truth, but Olmsted wonders if the hypnotic spell of Innsmouth might not have played a part. Still, he must at least tell us what he remembers, seeing by the light of that leering yellow moon. So I think you need to make a sand roll here. No, I've got my eyes shut. <laughs> yeah, but you're going to have to have a look. No, I'm keeping them shut. I'm not opening them. I'm keeping them shut. You can still hear it. <laughs> I'm putting my fingers in my ears. I blind myself and I make myself deaf. Now get me. <laughs> <laughs> You can smell it. And you have that description there of Olmsted wondering if the hypnotic spell of Innsmouth might not have played a part. Again, I like that. The idea that everything he's seen about this weird town and the decay there and the strangeness that's going on, whether this is somehow amplified things in his mind and maybe things weren't quite as weird as they seemed and... There's perhaps the power of suggestion at play, but on the other hand, no. The pursuers Olmsted has witnessed so far were all assuredly abnormal, so he was prepared to look upon forms that had no mixture of the normal at all. Still, even Zadok Allen's crazy tale has not prepared him for the demoniac, blasphemous reality he now sees. And I know I said about a sand roll, but I do think this is a sand roll. There's a quote at the start of a paragraph just uh, before the next reading where he says, it was the end for whatever remains to me of life on the surface of the earth, of every vestige of mental peace and confidence in the integrity of nature and of the human mind. And that's like, yeah, that's definitely a sanity roll, right? That's exactly what he's describing when he sees, you know, everything that he witnesses here. Some of that, I mean, is surely down to just how weird this variety of deep ones looks. But it's everything else about the situation, isn't it? It's the pursuit, it's the sheer number of them, it's all this happening after his experiences of the day and the stories he's been told. It's the oppressive atmosphere of Innsmouth. It's everything he's been primed for. If we're thinking about this in gaming terms, if you had a situation like this... Would you adjust 
potential sand losses based on the environment, the situation, the character's state of mind, or because potentially, because these are deep ones, you could make the argument, I wouldn't, but you could make the argument that you're, you're looking back, it's deep ones, or okay, it's a zero one d 6 sand loss. But it doesn't really feel like that, though, does it? No. And also, what strikes me is that the implication is they're out hunting for him. Hmm. But what we seem to be seeing here, rather than like a line, you know, spread out across the land, you know, searching the bushes as as, as we see, you know, in, in films when they're looking for a missing person or whatever. Here it seems more like a carnival parade yeah. progressing along the street. I, I imagine like the width of the street and like, I don't know, hundreds of meters long. It just seems like a, a, a massive parade of, of freakish monsters coming along, croaking and shouting. And that doesn't seem like a search party to me. It's not described that way. And that's, I think, what made me think of Tam O'Shanter because it's very much portrayed that way in the poem. Tam O'Shanter is being chased by these fairies, but it is very much in the form of this almost carnival procession. Yeah, rather than being chased by it, he's kind of like hiding in the bushes and seeing it go past. Yeah, like, a, like an audience member. Yeah, actually, the setup of this as well is quite nice. It's, again, the kind of thing you could have fun with in the game, where... Olmsted has made his way along these tracks. There's undergrowth around the sides, and he's managed to keep out of sight. But he's now coming up to this place where the tracks cross the road that they're on. And it's just this decision of, do I stay here? Do I hide? Do I, you know, what do I do as this procession comes past just where I am? I can't avoid seeing them. Yeah. If I run back, I'm probably going to give myself away. And there's just something, I think, quite terrifying about that setup. I saw them in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleating, surgingly, inhumanly through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant saraband of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that nameless whitish gold metal, and some were strangely robed, and one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers, and had a man's felt hat perched on the shapeless thing that answered for a head. The mundanity of the clothing compared to the body there is, is quite unsettling. It's deep one fashion show. <laughs> It seems like it. And again, here, Lovecraft sent me running for a dictionary because I don't know about you two, I didn't know what uh, Saraband was. Hmm. Uh, apparently it's a Spanish dance. Right. I don't know what a malignant Saraband would look like, but apparently not nice. My reaction's dancing at most times. <laughs> I think their predominant colour was a greyish-green though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish, with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on four. I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. <laughs> Some mm. great details in that, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. Their heads were the heads of fish. I've seen deep ones portrayed in all sorts of ways, visually. And occasionally you see them where they do just have fish heads. I mean, normally they're perhaps portrayed a bit more human with bulging frog-like eyes and mm. wide mouths and so on. But here we're told the heads of fish. This to me suggests, and we've seen lots of hints of this throughout, that there are lots of different varieties perhaps or lots of different mutations, forms of deep ones that look aquatic in different ways. Mm. Again, I think that's something you can have a lot of fun with in a game. I remember running um, 
a playtest of one game of mine that used deep ones and going through the copy of the Malice Monstorum at the time and thinking, hang on, this Blessed of Cthulhu, this looks like an interesting type of deep one that you can use and had that feature in the game. And I remember a certain player telling me after the game, what was that? Not recognising the uh, the description of it. <laughs> so yeah, it's in the Malice, it's in there. There's lots of different varieties mm. you can play around with in there. Cool. And just that throwaway line that I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. That just amused me for some reason. But for all their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me. I knew all too well what they must be. For was not the memory of that evil tiara at Newburyport still fresh? They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. And as I saw them, I knew also of what that humped tiarid priest in the black church basement had so fearsomely reminded me. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them, and certainly my momentary glimpse could have shown me only the least fraction. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting, the first I had ever had. Just when it gets to the good juicy description. Mm. We know what he rolled on the sandos table there. <laughs> and it's great how he gets to witness all of this, because I think if he was confronted by these things in an attack, then it'd obviously be mm. killed or abducted or whatever. But here he's just uh, just observing them. And also it's like, We've already heard that some people go to Newburyport or Ipswich or whatever with stories of Innsmouth, but they seem to be making a big point of hunting him down. It's not really clear to me why particularly, you know, why is this one person, why are they so bothered about this one person? I have theories, but we'll get into that in the next episode, I think. Hmm. No, fair enough, yeah. But yeah, I don't think it's necessarily malevolent. Yeah. I mean, it might be, but I, I think, like a lot of things in this story, it's strangely ambiguous, which is one of the reasons why I like this. We sort of touched upon the miscegenation aspect of this story a few times and the uncomfortable racial subtext in, in here. But, I mean, I think that is pretty ambiguous at times. We'll get to that, I think, more in the, the next episode. But there's clearly a lot of Lovecraft's racism and fears in this. But the way it's presented isn't always, I think, what you might expect from Lovecraft. And that aspect runs to all sorts of different parts of the narrative and the, the, the setup. And in the next episode, when we come to the end of the story, I, I think we can have some interesting discussion picking some of that apart. Yeah, looking forward to it. So join us next time for part five of The Shadow Over Innsmouth, where our tale concludes. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to thank people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new backers to thank croakingly by name. Thanks very much to Henrik Caffel. And thank you very much to Matt Taylor. And thank you very much to the singular Volens. And thanks to Kate. Thank you also to Stephen Miles. And thank you finally to Joy. Although we didn't croak through any of those. No. My voice is going a bit at this stage, so I, th I think I'm just implicitly croaking. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews might be found, mentioning it on social media if the topic comes up, or chasing potential listeners through marshland and croaking imprecations at them to listen to the show. But remember, if you do go doing that, you have to almost hop most of the way.
And my knees aren't up to it, Matt. I'm old and fat. My knees do not work. My hopping days are behind me. Don't. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.